We're going to be reading this morning from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Luke 19, I'm going to read from the New American Standard, verses 28 through 48. Luke 19, 28 through 48. The Word of the Lord. And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Thus you shall speak. The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you'd known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children with you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging upon his words. Let's pray. Father, we want to be in some ways, like the people that listen to Jesus. And we want to hang upon his every word, but we want to be different. When he says, I'm king, we want to bow the knee and say, yes, we will have this man to rule over us. Grant that we would hear these words of life and be changed and be followers of Christ more and more each day. Thank you for our brother Abe. I pray that you would bless the message he brings to us to your good ends in the life of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We live in the city of uh, Frisco. We recently moved there in, in uh, March. The tagline for the city is progress in motion. And uh, last week uh, we were uh, excited to come to church and bring our brand new grandson so that many of you are praying for him. Um, but uh, the progress part of the tagline impeded our motion, meaning that the freeways, the the, the uh, tollway was closed. So we tried some detours and couldn't make it. 
So this morning we decided that we planned ahead, we'll leave early and we looked for alternate routes because the freeway is again uh, closed for construction. And um, I left early in my car. My progress in motion was again impeded because I busted a tire. But the planning was great. They came behind and picked me up. And we were here actually earlier than usual. <laughs> I missed uh, praying with the elders. That's That part I missed, but we were able to be here earlier. But if you didn't get anything from my message today, at least uh, have one, th- in- one thing that you can take home, and that is be intentional. We were intentional in getting here and spending time with all of you. And because of that planning, and although life threw curveballs, we were still able to make it intentional in the uh, aspect of what we are going to talk about. I'm assuming that uh, after looking at the text for today, at least some of you, uh, or maybe few of you, are wondering, what is he trying to do using a passage for Palm Sunday? Abe Johnson, this is August. We've, uh, we've come a long way from Palm Sunday. Well, if you know me a little bit, I'm, I'm a bit unconventional. Therefore, um, I decided that uh, Palm Sunday, Passion of the Christ, all of that should be practiced, at, uh, thought about uh, and practiced, learned from week after week after week and not just yearly. And so this is a passage that I really love, have come to love with and looked at. And I'm going to look at it from a different perspective. I know the main message is the passion of the Christ as he leads to that last uh, journey into Jerusalem, only to be crucified a few days later. That is the main message. But there are embedded in this main message, there are multiple multiple um, different um, uh, takes of it. I'm going to take this from... Uh, look at this passage from a perspective of the king, uh, the kingdom, and the ambassadors of the king, and um, uh, which would tie, uh, tie uh, walk, uh, which would uh, go in parallel with the main theme, which is um, the passion of our Lord. As the uh, context leading up to this would point out, uh, Jesus was prepping his disciples for his uh, imminent and Im- uh, impending departure from them, and that having inaugurated the kingdom, only to be realized later on uh, in the future, having inaugurated its kingdom, he wanted ambassadors, ambassadors to live out the kingdom so that when it's fully realized that uh, 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 that we, we can, before it's fully realized, we as the ambassadors can provide uh, a glimpse of what it would be like in his kingdom. Uh, the apostles eventually would fully understand what that meant, uh, being the uh, ambassador of, of, of Christ. And uh, they have gone on and explained it uh, somewhat. Um, uh, Peter, for example, uh, say, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, verse, uh, verse 21 says, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. The idea of what ambassadors must do is to look at the Savior, look at the King, look at the the, the one who is reigning, 
and learn from him and emulate him while he is away as we are uh, uh, waiting for the uh, realization of the kingdom in its full uh, uh, sense of the word. And um, in, uh, Paul also brings this out in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, you are his dear children. Again, following the example of the king. So I'm going to look at this passage as as the Lord comes through and 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 has the triumphal entry and and cleansing of the of the uh, of the temple, all of that uh, all, the, all all of that plays out in front of us. I want us to look at from this idea of what is He trying to teach us as ambassadors. What is He trying for us to take away from this? He is demonstrating life principles that each of us must and can and, and should uh, make, uh, make part of our life as we uh, live in between the first ad- advent and the second advent when the kingdom is going to be fully realized. So we, we hear it quite often that between the first advent and the second advent, in this world we are his representatives, we are his epistles, we are his ambassadors, we are his people, uh, showing the world that desperately need to see him and how he operates, life that lived by us, by uh, th- th- that's the example that we are to show them. That this life that I am talking about is what we call a redemptive lifestyle, a redemptive lifestyle. Ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors of the of the King, lives out a redemptive lifestyle, and this redemptive lifestyle is theological because it involves the Triune God, Father. Um, it is salvific, or it it it, it relates to redemption and salvation goes hand in, hand in hand, and the Father thought of it, conceived of it, Son gets it done. And the Holy Spirit eliminates and moves the people into. So it's a triune uh, action. The the redemptive lifestyle is theological, uh, very rich in theology. It is also missiological, meaning it is a mission-driven lifestyle. It's a mission-driven lifestyle. And in the Great Commission, it says, Go ye therefore and make disciples. And in Christ's teaching, we also heard earlier today, in Christ's teaching, it says that love one another, and we have it up there, love your neighbor. So that's the mission. So it is missiological, whether it is local, whether it is global, whether it is transcultural, or whether it is intracultural. It doesn't matter what shape or form it takes, it is missiological, the redemptive lifestyle is not only theological, it is also missiological. And thirdly, it is eschatological, or bringing hope for the future. As we just said, the kingdom is going to be fully realized when he returns, and we're going to reign with him. And that the consummation of salvation of the earth, of all of us, the glorification part of all of this salvific plan or or the redemptive lifestyle is yet to be realized in the future. And therefore, there is hope. It is hope-laden as well. So it is theological. Redemptive lifestyle is theological, missiological, 
and uh, eschatological. From that point of view, when we look at what Christ is trying to teach his disciples in these last hours of his earthly life, um, it is important for us to, uh, to look at and and then learn how to live like that. If redemptive lifestyle is what is expected of the ambassadors to do, to live out, then what is he teaching in this, in this text that we read? We are living in a time, and it was, it was mentioned in our early meeting as well. We are living in a time when, especially if you're a news cycle, if you look at, I, I quit watching news for a while ago, uh, a few months ago. But if you if you were to follow news and other things, um, this these are times that points the the visuals that we see are points to the utter depravity of mankind, the hatred, the vitriol, not just here globally. Uh, it, it it shows the ugliness of, of of mankind, but it also tells me that redemptive lifestyle is all the more relevant at this time. And, and that's the reason I, I chose this, uh, this uh, uh, passage. In late uh, B.C. or before Christ, an early first century atmosphere or the ambience was about the same as well. The Jewish, um, dia- uh, Jewish uh, nation was desperately seeking a decisive, charismatic uh, Messiah uh, to lead them, to deliver them from the occupation of the Romans. Many such Messiahs, as we know, arose, but was of uh, uh, total failure. And, mes- and Jesus comes on the scene and had all the qualities of the Messiah. I'm again talking from the Jewish perspective. But yet they didn't want to fully, uh, fully grasp and fully understand his message. He could, they couldn't do anything to him because of the popularity that he had. He, his three-year public ministry, and as the, the, the text that we read clearly states that the people were thronging to him. People were hanging on to his words, and and the miracles and the way he touched lives was uh, was was uh, causing a following for him, and therefore the Jewish hierarchy did not want to touch him. Here in the text that we just read, his passion is about to begin. Over the years, the word passion has taken a different meaning. In our, 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 our uh, lifetime, our time, passion may not carry the same meaning as it did once. The original meaning of the word passion is suffering, suffering. Christ was looking forward to the few days ahead of him as he was preparing for his passion or suffering. And as he was preparing for this, he wants to prepare his disciples for the time when he will not be there, that he will be gone. And that what, how he would have acted in scenarios like this, laden with life principles that these ambassadors of Christ can take to heart and live out 
and living in, living out, they will have a redemptive lifestyle. My goal and my prayer as I was sitting here uh, at the short week of preparation is this. If there are anyone who is sitting here who do not know Christ as your king, my prayer is that you will be moved to accept him, to enthrone him as your king. And I know most of you all have him as the king. And in that scenario, I want us to pay attention to the life principles that he teaches us and emulate him in the few days that I, I consider it to be very few days ahead of us before his return. So from the text that we looked at, I want to look at a king with a mission, a king with compassion, and a king who is uncompromising. King with a mission, king with compassion, and a king who is uncompromising. Reading verse 28 and down. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He's going on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He was committed to a mission. He was going on ahead up to Jerusalem. From the moment he was born and the years that he lived, his intention, his journey, his actions all pointed to this historic moment that's about to happen in Jerusalem. Mark the Gospel of Mark brings it out even better. Common word, what you see in, in the Gospel of Mark is immediately, immediately, immediately. In other words, Mark is just running. And it culminates in, in, in Jerusalem in, with his crucifixion. But textually also, this is true. The, the, the word used here, the main verb used here, and the, 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 uh, the voice and the tense and the mood, uh, speaks of speaks of an action that was started in the past, a determined action that was started in the past, and that was ongoing. A determined action that was started in the past, that was ongoing. So he was going ahead. Why? He came with a mission. My will is to, my food is to do the will of my father. He had no confusion about his mission. He was absolutely sure what he came to do and everything that he did was to fulfill that mission. So this is a king with a mission. Verse 29 to 31. When he approached Bethphage in Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent Two of the disciples go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So these, those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and uh, as they threw their coats on the colt and Jesus, and put Jesus on it. And 
as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a shout voice for all the miracles which had they, which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. A royal procession is what you are seeing. This was prophesied by Zechariah in chapter 9 and verse 9, that the actual Messiah will come on a colt. Matthew, Matthew's description of it uh, quotes that, uh, that section from Zechariah. So anyone, and this group seemed to be very inundated with the scripture, with the Hebrew scripture, anyone who was around there who had any inclination of believing the scripture could have uh, looked at this and said, I remember Zechariah prophesied about this. Yes, he is the one. And that's what we are seeing unfolded here. As you can see, as soon as he was heading up to Jerusalem, he approached, approached Bethany right, right at the foothills of Mount Olivet. And he says, something else need to happen here as prophesied by Zechariah. Go get the colt. Go get the colt. He was confident of his role as a king. We heard this morning about the paradoxes. This is one of them. Kings don't travel on colts, especially an untried one, a young one. We see in, in, in Revelation that he comes, comes riding a white horse. And here he requests a colt, a young one at that. It is still a procession. This procession happens to be paradoxically opposite of the procession that is yet to happen. The location is the same, Mount Mount, Mount of Olives. Sometime in the near future, he will come down. But in the first advent, it was different, paradoxically different. But he was confident of his role in the first advent, and that was to die on the cross for the sin, sins of those, of all of us, them and us. So he was, the king was confident of his role. Thirdly, as a king with a mission, he was consistently outside the box in his thinking. Would you call riding on the, on, on a colt outside the box? Absolutely. Would you call uh, the, the the way he was ascending when there was a, an actual king somewhere in Rome enthroned and 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 and, and uh, ruling his people through uh, through uh, regions of various kinds that he would take up this very politically charged position of a of a of a procession a royal procession while he. Everything that he has done, if you look at, it is out, he thinks outside the box. He, uh, whether he went to the uh, uh, went, went to the sinners uh, uh, and, and and loved on them, whether he um, he was at the tax collector's house, and 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 the, and the examples are many and many many as we read through the narrative. So this king thought outside the box and practiced outside the box as he was uh, focused on his mission. And lastly, uh, verse 40 tells us, 
that he or tells, tells us that he is um, he's um, very comfortable in his identity. 39 says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your uh, disciples. But Jesus answered, if I tell you, I tell you, if these become silent, stone will, stones will cry out. He knew he was the king then. He knew he is the king who is to rule uh, in the future. He knew he had come with the mission to die on the cross so that he can gather unto himself not only the, 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 the special people of the Old Testament, but the entire world. The, the Abrahamic covenant inclusion of the, of the nations of the world. Was he, that's what he was seeing in front of him. He was extremely focused on his mission. He's very comfortable in his identity in, in the first advent that he would be uh, in the second advent as well. His, his reply to the Pharisees uh, to quiet his disciples with one of the most, most profound statements that would echo down the centuries. If these will become silent, the stones will cry out. I did a little um, study in, in Hebrew there just to see what's going on. Uh, if these people, Pharisees, very expert in their original language, obviously, if these Pharisees were uh, paying attention to what he is saying, there is a word play that I found, and that is the word, the Hebrew word for son is ben, and the Hebrew word for stones is eben. And if you do the plural of it, is benim and ebenim. In other words, he was saying if my sons will not cry out, the stones will. And it's beautiful, he's intentionally using it in my opinion. So if the, if the, if my sons will not cry out, the stones will cry out because the stones would have already identified me as the creator of this universe. The inanimate objects can recognize me as the Creator, I gave this stone its nature. But the animate one, the, the ones who should understand me, if they fail to understand me and recognize me as king, it doesn't matter, I'm going to be king nonetheless. That's what he's trying to say. So this is a king with the mission. He's committed to the mission. He is confident of his role. He is consistently outside the box in his, in his way of dealing with uh, carrying out his mission. He is com- comfortable in his identity. We can learn from his example. Just like Peter said, he is our example. Just like uh, Paul said, learn from him, imitate him. What is the life uh, principle that we learn from this part. The life principle is to be successful in your redemptive life or in your mission as Christ followers. You mu- we must be committed to our mission. We must be uh, without any role confusion and daring to be outside the box and comfortable with our identity in Christ. When we look at ourselves as redemptive, as we live out the redemptive lifestyle, are we, as his people, are we comfortable in our identity in him? Are we uh, committed to the mission? Are we committed to, um, uh, are, are we sure about our role? 
Secondly, from verse, uh, from 41 to 44, a king with compassion. 41 to 44. Let me read that real quickly. Verses 41 to 44. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it and, and, uh, and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would, what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in from every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's visitation or coming to you. A king with compassion is what I see here. The, as, as the narrative progresses here, we just had the procession of the king. We just had a, celebrate, uh, a celebration of the king by the common man, the people around him. But then all of that celebration, the noise, the music, all, all of that pomp and circumstances comes to a close as Jesus stops from his vantage point and looks over to Jerusalem and he starts weeping. There is one other place where he wept. We all know that, right? The two two times he wept, he wept, in my opinion, because of what he saw as unbelief and the future of the, the, the misery and the unbelief of people. At Lazarus' tomb, we typically hear that he wept because of the grief of, of, of the sisters. Probably true, but also I think it is the unbelief of those who uh, Martha just just had a dialogue with him in the, high theology that when you come back, my my brother would rise and then he watches her cry along with the the wailing people. So he wept. So he empathized with her, agreed, but he also wept because of the unbelief of the people. He looks over at Jerusalem and he is moved by what is about to happen to this very city, the very nation, the very people who have been given the opportunity to see the king, enthrone the king, accept him as the suffering savior, and then wait for him to come and establish the kingdom. They missed the first part. And he looks at Jerusalem, and he sees AD 70 and and, and beyond, beyond that, and he sees that this city will be destroyed completely while he is right there watching it. He could see it and they are missing it. And he is moved with compassion. And he is moved with compassion because, as he says, if you, even you, had only known that this day would bring you peace, compassion resulting from a desire for peace for his people, a peace for all of us, peace that passes all understanding for peace with God that we often talk about. This is also compassion on human suffering. He looks at, for those days will come when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in from every side and you and, and, you and your children with you. They will not leave one stone upon another. Historically came true. It's never God's ultimate desire for his people to be punished, 
but for them to return to him. Matthew's gospel, when talking about the same thing, he, it, 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 he renders it like this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Moved by compassion of human suffering that he could see. This is also a compassion in spite of rejection because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. They did not recognize him. The very people who probably, some of them who threw their clothes in the ground and coronated him as king, would in a few hours turn around and cry out, crucify him, crucify him. They needed him for the miracles. They needed him for the bread. They needed him for the healing. They needed him for all of those physical needs. But when the moment of time came, when he was, injustice was poured upon him and God's wrath was revealed on him, they, they, they added to it by saying, crucify him, crucify him. They did not, compassion in spite of rejection. The word of, uh, word for visitation is, one, uh, it's only used in this uh, this verse uh, in the New, in, in the New Testament. That's, this is the only time it is used there. It it actually means um, <clears throat> means uh, the visitation of grace, graceful visitation. And the, the translation that we read does not bring that out. The word for visitation here, the majority of the time, it renders visitation that it is gracious for protection and care. What he is saying that. I am here to give the amazing grace of God that he is extending to you through my sacrifice which is about to happen but yet you don't you do not see it compassion in spite of rejection Jesus wept knowing the suffering and destruction that was about to descend upon Jerusalem we know that we as his ambassadors, we know the coming judgment for those who reject Christ. We know it very clearly. We know that Jesus had moved with compassion. And if we are to emulate him, do we move with compassion as we look at how the enemy has barricaded and how the enemy has sequestered the people that we love the most? where they cannot see Christ as their Savior. I was watching a little bit of a news last week with all the stuff that's going on. I personally believe that race and ethnicity is sacred because it tells me of God's creative genius. God created each one of us, different as we are. So anyone who rejects God's creativity in creating us the way we want, is rejecting Him. And that's the kind of rejection, a different kind of rejection that we see. As I was watching this, and I am thinking, why am I not crying? Sunday I'm going to get up and preach this. Why am I not crying for these folks? Why am I not being moved in my heart to cry for these folks? Because they are not seeing the suffering that is about to happen. 
the burning hell that is ahead of them. Brothers and sisters, if we as his ambassadors, as we live out the, the genuine redemptive life, day in and day out, as we interact with our people, the sphere of our influence that is ahead of us, that's in front of us, around us, if we are not moved by tears, thinking about the, 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 the hell that is in, ahead of some of these folks, if we, are mo- if we are not moved to share Christ with them, I think there is something wrong with us. We may not know the mission of the king as much. And we are not following a king who moves, uh, who moves with compassion. And lastly, so the life principle here is, Christ followers must realize that although we are not of the world, but we are in the world, to, and to be change agents in the world, we must practice compassion to the enormous needs of this world. We are to be peacemakers. We must collaborate to ease both physical suffering and spiritual suffering without compromising our faith. Rejection must be expected. If they rejected the king, they will reject the king's ambassadors as well. Last point, the king who will not compromise. Verses 45 to 46. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. When the actual purpose of the temple is violated, believe me, violations were fairly innovative, weren't it? These folks who came there traveled a long distance, so it is just the right thing to do to have the money changers in there. It is the right thing to have the the sacrificial animals there. It is service-oriented, right? Pretty innovative for the time. Not in Jesus' eyes. He said, this temple was built for as a, build, as a temple of prayer where God would meet with you. Anything outside of that is unacceptable. He will not compromise. He rejected defilement. He rejected defilement. We are called the temple of God, temple of the Holy Spirit. If we are to live a redemptive lifestyle impacting the world for Christ and our heart and our life is full of defilement, things that were that are not supposed to be there, being harmless as it may be, then I think we are not following the principle that he has set us to follow. We as temples of God must have an uncompromising stand when it comes to holiness. Hard, not easy to practice, especially with the technology and all these other things that really uh, just just pervades into the, the deep recesses of our mind. It's hard. But the word of God doesn't change. If Christ rejected defilement in any, any, any fashion, as Peter reminds us again, be ye holy as I am holy. That's the expectation. We must reject defilement. And then what he do? What, what did he do there? 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among 
the people were trying to destroy him. In the middle of rejection, he does what he is supposed to do and he reestablishes God in the temple. He reestablishes the teaching of the word in the temple. Presence of God reestablished. And then lastly, and they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on to his very word. Another word that is used, hanging on to, is another uh, unique word that's not used elsewhere in the scripture. It, the, the picture one of the, one of the scholars have put, it, uh, earlier scholars have put in is that it is like an iron clinging to a strong magnet. As the magnet comes, all the irons jump and cling to it. That's the picture that word gives us. The people were hanging on to every word he said. There were a couple of people in the scripture that their words were powerful. It's spoken of Samuel. God was with him. The presence of God was with him. And none of the words he spoke fell to the ground. In other words, his words were reliable. Simon Peter, when when asked about, will you also leave me? A powerful question asked by the Lord. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Not only defilement is rejected, not only the presence of God reestablished, the words spoken was so powerful that the people were hanging on to each one of them. As the ambassadors of Christ, when we live a redemptive missional lifestyle that he is wanting us to do every single day, do we reject defilement? Do we reject, or do we bring God back to where he needs to be in our lives, in, in our interactions with people? And when we speak because of the holiness that we practice, with, he helps us practice, that when we speak, people listen. It brings cleansing to the hearers. And that's what we need to do. Words that come out of an ambassador of Christ who keeps himself or herself from defilements are powerful words that can alter the course of the hearer's life. We are the salt of the earth. Jesus told us we must stand to purify rather than putrefy. We must stand to preserve rather than to destroy. So what's the life principle here? Seeing the enormity of what Jesus had done in his self-limitation, yet not limited to uh, committing sin himself, but remaining distinctly separate from the world when it comes to his holiness. We as Christ followers, ambassadors, must reject defilement in all its cruel forms. Understand that God's presence requires personal holiness and be real and authentic so that our words will transmit eternal consequences to the hearers, not only consequences, but eternal possibilities as well, to the hearers, making them cling to it. So I want to quickly wrap this up. The king was mission-driven. The king was compassionate. The king was uncompromising. Can we, as his ambassadors, be any less than that? Can he expect from us as his ambassadors any 
less than that. And on the flip side, if we were to do this, can anyone, can anything, can any ideology, can any hatred that's out there, can it stop us from being relevant in this world? Can it take away the glory that we, that, that, that we can bring to the king and then con- uh, 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 concentrating all of it into that future glorious time when he comes to establish his kingdom, fully realizing his kingdom. When we realize our role as ambassadors of Christ, as he has taught us these life principles, I am telling you, we will be a force to reckon with. We will not get sidetracked by all the hooplas and ideologies and stuff that goes around us. And then we interact and intervene and invest in the lives of others. It becomes powerful and life-changing for them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your words. Feeble as the messenger was, unprepared as the messenger was. We pray that you would continue to speak to your people. We pray, Father, that we can live as the ambassadors, living with the mission, mission mission-focused, making disciples, loving loving one another, loving our neighbor, that we can live with compassion. May there be not a single day in our lives when we look at someone who is straightly headed to the lake of fire, that we stop and cry out for them and do everything possible that we can do through the empowerment of your Holy Spirit to reach them and pull them out. Maybe as your ambassadors, Lord, reject defilement, reestablished your word, your worship in places where it needs to be. And that we live that such a holy life that we become change agents for the millions of life that would come in, in touch with us. Not by coincidence, by, but by divine appointment. Every single day of our lives. May you move us to be thoughtful of that in our everyday interactions. We are so grateful that you are our king. We are so grateful that what was inaugurated and what's living in the hearts of your people will one day soon be realized in its full glory and power. Drive us with that hope, but also help us to realize that in between these two advance, that we need to be effective, redemptive in our and, and, and intentional in our life so that your name can be glorified and Christ can be the answer to many, many who will come in contact with us. Send us home with your presence, your guidance, your love. Looking forward to this week that is ahead of us. Many challenges would come, but help us to stay focused on you, close to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.